Hello, patrons, and welcome to the first official Truckabout slash tuning in patron episode that is being recorded in Trump's America. Yes, we have. Uh, and, we're, and we're talking about diplomacy and ambassadorship. So it's very ironic because Trump yells at everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The parts in which uh, in, in Sarek, when uh, Picard is just flipping out from the emotions, that's Trump on a normal day. And I think it's only getting worse. We're really hoping that by the time this release, Trump has literally just had a stroke or something like that. It could happen. It could happen. I mean, you know, we're going to we're recording this uh, like four days before it comes out. So Mm. it's very possible. It's been the kind of life lately where things change from moment to moment. But one thing that does not change is our love for Star Trek. That is very true. And that's a good segue. Ah. So this was Richard's idea. This was Richard's month. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was this Star Trek in general, Next Generation and DS9 so far, make a lot of references to the original series. Less so in the early seasons of Next Generation, and that was deliberate. But we do have a lot of episodes in which they revisit a character, or uh, in in the case of uh, Trials and Tribulations, for example, they revisit a literal episode. Um, We have episodes like Relics, where Scotty appears. And so I wanted to do kind of two episodes that were... Uh, the original series and a next-gen version of a very similar plot. And so we picked Journey to Babel and Sarek because we kind of have the bookends of one of the more important characters in the Star Trek overarching uh, mythology, if you want to use the X-Files term. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other part of that, too, of course, is that Journey to Babel and Sarek have the character of Sarek in, in very different points yeah. in, in, in his life, which I think is interesting. And then also uh, with the recent news that... Uh, Sarek is going to be in Star Trek Discovery, um, who is being cast by, I think, James Frain is his name. Hmm. Um, some British actor. I don't really know who he is, but he looks like Mark yeah. Leonard. So that's a good choice. We'll see how he acts. But, um, you know, it's also kind of relevant because in the same way that like TNG and DS9 and Voyager, you know, reference TOS at certain points. It, it seems that Discovery is also going to sort of like be riffing on the original series, which of course makes sense since it takes place like 10 years before the original series. Yeah. But so at that point, um, Spock would probably be, it would Spock still be a child at this point or probably not? No, he, no, would, be, he would have been like, uh, but he would be a very junior officer at this point, I'd assume. Yeah. Cause if you, if you look at, I believe the cage was supposed to be 10 years. Actually, hmm. Discovery might be 10 years before the cage. Okay. So 20 years before TOS because the cage was 10 years before TOS, if I'm remembering correctly. So, yeah, he would have been yeah. like either fresh out of the academy or he would have been in the academy, I think. Yeah, which actually that's going to be interesting because as we find out in Journey to Babel, Sarek has a lot of thoughts and feelings about his son joining uh, Starfleet rather than um, – one of the Vulcan uh, science organizations. And so obviously his character in Discovery might be going through those feelings yeah. right at that point. Yeah, and also not not to turn this into a Star Trek Discovery podcast, well, but... I, but it's I, all connected. It's all connected, sure. I mean, it is it is Star Trek. Um, I, I think it's interesting that they're, they're having Sarek as a character in that as well, because that kind of implies that, you know, a large part of it, or at least a storyline in Star Trek Discovery, is going to be about some sort of diplomatic yeah. uh, a crisis or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. Um, so, yeah, so we see, again, we see this Journey to Babel shows Sarek in his prime. Uh, and, I mean, Sarek is one of, it's one of my favorites of the next generation. And 
I mean, it's a gut-wrenching episode. It's very uh, – we, and especially more so watching the two episodes back-to-back because when I first saw Sarek, it had been like – a year about, and a half Yeah, since yeah. I'd seen Journey to Babel. And so it had uh, – the impact was much stronger the way that, you know, this great person has – due to old age and illness, degraded and gotten into such a... It, it's a very sad moment. But. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, one thing I never picked up with in, in, in Sarek specifically was, uh, uh, you know, in Sarek, the plot line is that uh, Sarek is very old. I think he's supposed to be 202 or something like that. Yeah. And he's uh, uh, going on the Enterprise because they're going to this planet Lagaran to, uh, you know, have a negotiation. And Sarek is going to lead the negotiation. Mm-hmm. This is something that he's been working on for, for years and he years. He says 93 years. So if he's 200, it's literally half his life. This is, in a way, this incident, this uh, mission is his life's work. Yeah. And if he, you know, he wants to complete this so that way he can, you know, find and finally retire and, you know, step back. And that would be like 10 years after the events of Journey to Babel. So mm. it kind of slots in nicely with that. Okay. But what I think is interesting about, about Sarek is, you know, it has him in this place where he has, uh, I forget what it's called. What's the disease called? Oh. Uh, Something. I don't remember. But he has a, a Vulcan disease, which essentially breaks down their ability to to control, suppress their emotions. Yeah. And it's so, very, it's obviously the analog of Alzheimer's. Right. But- so the entire, which is kind of interesting too, because it's not really the mental faculties; it's the emotional faculties, yeah. which is kind of weird. Um, it's kind of an interesting commentary on that. But well, I mean, I know my my grandfather has Alzheimer's, and just seeing the a lot of the emotions are very surface, especially when you lose the verbal yeah. abilities. So it again, the parallels were very, and that's another thing, you know. Since uh, watching Sarek the first time, you know, my grandfather has progressed in his illness, and so it's, you know on that level too but not to, to br- make this too personal. way to bring the audience i was gonna it. say i'm sorry but no I, I think it's it's kind of a, a interesting juxtaposition because you know in sarek he's losing his emotional control and you see a sarek that is emotional mm-hmm. whereas in journey to babel like the entire plot line that sarek has is about his uncomfortableness with his son yeah being half human well and and also the fact that that sarek seems to have some sort of fetish for humanity because his wife in journey to babel amanda is human and then 100 years later he's married to another human woman perrin (laughs) yeah i mean he says about uh marrying amanda that it was logical and certainly you can see why he could find all of these logical reasons while i was uh you know working with earth very closely and so you know that kind of cemented that alliance and you know, when I met Perrin, well, I was already used to living with the human woman, and so it was, you know, more comfortable. And But I think what's a, what's very interesting about Journey to Babel is how emotional all of Sarek's responses are. He's, his just emotions are very internal. I mean, his entire business of not wanting to talk to his son because he didn't follow in his footsteps, that's the most irrational, you know, angry dad thing that there could be. Um, yeah. His... His 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 interactions with Amanda are very subtle. This where they just hold their fin- you know their hands together, but it is very clear that he loves her deeply and that she's able to read that. I mean, Perrin as well in her episode at the end when uh, Picard says, "Well, he loves you very much," and she says, "Well, I always knew she you know, the love you know for for I assume Amanda and for Perrin." That Sarek is capable of very deep and great love is has never been in doubt. They just yeah they have to learn to read it differently than you know a human would express it. But that doesn't mean it's not there. 
And frankly, I think even the moment when he's talking with the the pig aliens, right? Uh, the Tellarites. The Tellarites. Um, about the founding member of the Federation. Ah, they're assholes. Um, and they're asking, you know, what's... You'll what's, see them in Enterprise. Ah. Um, and they're asking, you know, what's your vote? What's your vote? And, you know, the, Sarek is not screaming and yelling, but he's doing the Vulcan equivalent. And what he's... His reasoning for backing Corridan is specifically because... You know, they're a mining company colony and without uh, – they're a mining planet and without somebody – big, you know, the Federation to protect them, you know, anybody could just strip right in and get their stuff. And it's, if he's very – number one, I think that's a beautiful illustration of why the Federation is good and why the Federation wants to – you know, the Federation isn't interested in Cordan because, right. oh, we have all of these extra – you know, certainly that will be a nice resource sure. for the Federation, but they also know – if we don't step in, they're going to be just attacked by anybody who's got bigger guns. Yeah, 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 totally. And that, to me, is also a very emotional response to that desire to protect. Well, that, I think, is something that I've been thinking about uh, this week specifically because uh, – partially because I've been reading um, – the again, I keep mentioning this, but I'm, these wonderful uh, oral histories of Star Trek, which I'm almost done with. Mm-hmm. Sob, sob. But – I would love to borrow them, but I would never be allowed to. You'll never be allowed to. Get them from the library. We have a very good library here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Anytime I look at them, he has to make sure – he tells me I have to wash my hands. You have to, I, put, I make you wear gloves. <laughs> and, and you give me a set of tongs to turn the pages with. Um, is that uh, – is something that they said in, in, in the Enterprise section of that book I thought was very interesting because there's a Vulcan character in Enterprise. And – they they specifically every time that they were and they said this about Tuvok as well when they were talking about because each each section kind of goes over the casting process yeah. has a has a section that goes over the casting process for each series and uh, uh, Voyager was the first series since the original series to have a Vulcan as a main cast member and then Enterprise had one because of course it was a prequel yeah. to TOS and they wanted to do something with with Vulcans again and. In both parts of that book, talking about the casting process for Tuvok and the casting process for the, the Vulcan character in, in, in Enterprise, they said that it's very difficult to find an actor. It's very difficult to cast Vulcans because what you get is mm-hmm. a lot of actors who just sort of act like robots. And watching Journey to Babel and Sarek, I was really struck by that because – you know, obviously Leonard Nimoy was, was brilliant. He yeah. really set the template for what a Vulcan is. And – both he and Mark Leonard, though, are playing Vulcans, I think, in the quote-unquote proper way, which is that they're not robots. Mm-hmm. They're not emotionless. They're not automatons. They they don't smile. They don't laugh. But their tones of voice are, are not robotic. And I think you see that especially with um, the character of the aide in Sarek. Yeah. That actor is not playing a good Vulcan. Like he's way too robotic. He has no intonation in his voice whatsoever. It's a very flat affect, and that's what I like about it. Because one of the one of the reasons that I find Vulcan so intriguing is this idea mm. that they uh, 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 don't have emotions; it's that they're suppressing them. Yeah, and I mean, I think even Troy said at one point, or I'm, I could be making this up, but I, I think she did say at one point, or maybe this was in a novel. I don't know, but. There's a very specific school of Vulcan psychotherapy and like, you know, it's not good for a human to suppress their emotions, yes. but for a Vulcan, it's it's normal, quote unquote. Yeah, it, it comes off more as restraint in a lot of ways. And uh, one of the words they use in the episode, Sarek, Picard calls it an indignity, the way that he is 
this this disease is starting to and so in a way um you know a single tear you know a, a vulcan crying in public is like somebody almost shitting themselves in public like we you know an adult controls their bodily functions an adult vulcan also controls their emotions it's like what you would feel like if you were at the supermarket and a 45 year old man was having like a full on 4 year old meltdown temper yeah. tamper tantrum yeah. tamper tantrum <laughs> Temper tantrum. Yeah, no, no, no. But but that doesn't mean that the emotions aren't there. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I think the older aide plays Vulcan a little better. He doesn't do it as robotically. I don't he think isn't... he's supposed to be a Vulcan, though. Oh, I thought he was. I think I don't think he has pointed ears. Oh, I didn't notice. And that. he also okay. doesn't have the you know bowl haircut that, well. that apparently all Vulcans have. <laughs> it's I... a law or something. Oh well, okay. That, then that doesn't. Um... Okay. One one thing I want to say for Star Trek Discovery. Well, maybe not for Star Trek Discovery because you know it's a prequel, but. Can we, like, get away from the idea that all alien species have the same fucking haircut? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it's dumb, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just just take out all of the alien hair and you're fine. There you go. Just shave them all bald like Deltons. Ooh. I mean, what I'm even just thinking of is the event is um, the cage when we see Spock smile, for example. And, you know, a lot of people say is that out of character. But, again, if we're going 10 years earlier then that's a spock who's had slight you know somewhat less uh restraint less trading and restraint and who is overwhelmed by a certain emotion again the vulcans can be overwhelmed and i think it's it's not incidental that we're told a lot about vulcan art and vulcan you know music and stuff like that like vulcan has a very rich creative culture that's that doesn't mean yeah there's something about i think in the original series where vulcans are not um supposed to eat food with their hands mm. you know stuff like that i mean that's not necessarily i mean you could certainly spin that as logical because it avoids Germs contamination or something but that's also kind of a that's a cultural thing that that isn't necessary i mean there are, there are instances right where we're eating food with your hands would probably be more logical than, than not yeah. eating it with your hands and there's certain cultures which do just eat with the hands you know if yeah you, certain middle eastern cultures you know which how you know you're eating it with bread and stuff like that yeah um but it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense for a vulcan to like take the time to get out a knife and fork to eat the vulcan equivalent of an apple right i wonder if they have apples <laughs> probably have something they're much larger i'd have six foot fangs or whatever (laughs) um well so i think that um one of the other intriguing things about about the episode sarek and not the character sarek is that you know we talked about this a little bit when we talked about about sarek uh, way back when we we did that um covered that for for the podcast 43 years ago 43 years ago (laughs) I, i i'm as old as a vulcan at this point i'm 127 years old is that you know, the TNG has always had a very interesting relationship with with the original series. I think that the entire franchise has had an interesting relationship with the original series. And you know, prior to this, the only time that a, a, a TOS character had appeared on the Next Generation was way back in the pilot when when old McCoy appeared for about two seconds, and that was really about just passing the yeah. torch. Now, they certainly got more comfortable doing it as the show came into its own. And Deep Space Nine obviously played around with that a lot more. I think primarily because on TNG, you didn't have as many staff writers who were TOS fans. And, you know, when you were writing for The Next Generation, if you were a Star Trek fan, you were an, you were an original series fan because there was no other yeah. Star Trek. 
Whereas Deep Space Nine, I think pretty much all the writers in the room, um, you know, grew up on the original series and, and grew up loving it. And so that was a very, a very different writing environment. And that was a very different show. They were also, uh, again, I keep mentioning, we'll have to do a podcast on, on these at some point. Maybe Rowan Richard gets them from the library. <laughs> but there was a very interesting thing where um, they were talking about uh, Voyager and Enterprise and, and how difficult those shows were to run because there was so much studio and network because at that point it was a network show because of UPN. Voyager and, and Enterprise were both on UPN. They weren't syndicated like TNG and DS9 were. That they had you know, Paramount the studio. They also had UPN the network giving them notes and ideas and telling mm-hmm. them they couldn't do things. And uh, uh, very interestingly, at one point, I forget who said it. It might have been Brandon Braggett. It might have been Ronald D. Moore. It might, it might have even been Rick Berman. I don't remember. Said basically flat out that that Rick Berman could not control Iris Stephen Bear. And he was going to, by, by you know, hell or high water, control uh, uh, whoever was running Voyager. Mm. And I think you see that a lot in Deep Space Nine with the way that the show plays with the the history of Star Trek in a way that TNG never did really. I also think part of it does have to do with the see. So next generation, when next generation was being created, I mean, d- the concepts of it is original series, the adventures of the crew of the ship, the enterprise next generation, the adventures of the sh- sh- crew of the ship, the enterprise deep space nine has a much more singular concept so does Voyager, so does Enterprise in these ways. And also because it was the first sequel series in a lot of ways, I know that so much of Next Generation was very, you know, can we make this concept work? And part of the reason that it, it did take a while, it took the better part of two seasons to find its own voice. And so I can certainly see why the leeriness towards making any TOS references because they wanted to make it, a distinct thing. And then once you get to episodes like Sarek, it is very much its own show now. Um, and the, and you can also do an episode which shows the ravages of time and how much things have changed in the hundred years since, uh, the original series, you know, which the episode Sarek is completely permeated with deep space nine found its voice very quickly. Yeah. And so it doesn't have those men as many of those problems. Yeah. And I mean, deep space nine was, was very obviously helped by the fact that Iris Stephen Barry, even though he wasn't the showrunner for the first yeah. two years was, was involved in all the writing staff. And so, you know, you had him there all seven years putting his unique stamp on that show and really making it his own. Whereas TNG obviously did not have that. I yeah. Mean, TNG had, I think five different showrunners, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, Voyager had almost as many. Um, and so, yeah, that that's definitely a problem that kind of crops up with, with I think TNG to some degree that, that there are so many people trying to put their stamp on it that, you know, and especially in the early seasons when it was trying to prove itself. Now, interestingly enough though, I mean, I, I agree with that to some, some degree, but it, it's, it's a strange thing though, because TNG was at least in the first season, especially I think, you know, it was being written by people that had written on the original series yeah. that cut their teeth writing television in the 60s. Um, it was a very different sort of environment in the 80s, and it became a very different sort of environment in the 90s. And you also had people um, like Robert Justman, who was a producer on the original series, who was working on the first season of TNG. So part of the reason why I think TNG feels a lot more like TOS is because of the storytelling structure of it. And I can kind of see where they wanted to 
it's not even that they were necessarily afraid to bring up the original series or bring up characters from that, but it was more like, I guess it felt, it felt unnecessary because in their minds, you know, in DC Fontana's mind and and David Gerald's mind and and Robert Justman's mind and Gene Roddenberry's mind, they were essentially making the original series only with different characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, the concept was very much the same and, it, I guess it wasn't until later that they were able to use this to expand the world and tell and, – and I guess there was kind of a – the fact that they don't really have Vulcans and Romulans from the beginning quite yet was a desire to expand the world of the series, the expand the universe, which as we you know learned when we watched it, DNG really did a lot to do. Yeah, and I mean, certainly TNG did not do a very good job of that early on. No. You know, I mean, the Ferengi were not uh, uh, (laughs) well-designed villains, let's say. No. Um, But they eventually got got their voice, too. You could say that. Well, and and it wasn't until DS9 that they got their voice, but... But I think that, I mean, the other thing, too, to, to think about is, I guess specifically regarding characters from the old show coming in you know does it make sense that the the first big storyline that an original series character gets is Sarek and I I think so because there's less writing on it right there's less writing on it there's a lot more original that they can do I mean watching Journey to Babel as opposed to Sarek the character is so much more well defined in Sarek than he is in and that's just you know the writing structure in a way, um, and I think some of that some of that comes from Mark Leonard's appearances in the movies too. Yes, that's true. He was in um he was in Star three. Trek three, Star Trek four, and I think that's it. Mm. Okay, I I really only remember him in three when he comes to Kirk to talk about a son and those kind of things. But he was only in four very briefly. He was in yeah. four at the very end. Okay, um, it is a very good choice to pick him because he is a very striking character again his one appearance in journey to babel made him now which movies had been out by this point uh everyone but well, let's see this was 80 this was the end of the third season so that would have been 1990 so everything but the undiscovered country okay um so so so, so certainly sarek's movie appearances had come from journey to babel just because obviously if spock dies you're gonna have his father appear but yeah, it's a way of referencing the original series without having as much of the baggage that, for example, Relics later on. You can't do that when – if you had done Relics at this point even, it would have been too strong of a brew. Uh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. anything from the original series is very potent. And so one character who appeared in one episode and a couple of the movies and yet who is a fan favorite and who does have a very – strong relationship to one of the most iconic elements of the original series is a is a very good choice and it's also one that doesn't feel like an in-joke i mean the appearance of mccoy in the first episode is an in-joke it's a little easter egg it's a it's a gag for people who were in the original who loved the yeah original i've never series. i've never really liked that scene i mean I yeah don't, i don't think it serves much of a purpose and also and let's put it this way if you've never seen an episode of the original series if encounter at farpoint is the first star trek you see and i'm so sorry that's not the way to do this the way to get into star trek is to watch everything uh straight through and do a podcast about it over seven years um you can appreciate the story of Sarek 
on its own without necessarily knowing who this character is in sure. the larger picture. The episode explains enough. He's a very high-ranking, important ambassador. Everybody respects and loves him. Um, and his his introductory scene when everybody's all, oh, ambassador has to get to bed, you know, he has to rest, and he appears, he's, no, let's see the conference room. And, you know, he's very... Uh, I mean, he he steals the scene. He very much uh, draws everything. I think that would be enough. You can just watch Sarek the episode and and get it. Yeah, I think that's true. And the, I mean, the other reason why it works is, is is if you are familiar with the character of Sarek. Yes, it's a really there's a reason to bring this character back. There, they have something to say about the character. They have something to say about you know his relationship with the franchise and and with the history of the Federation. I mean, Picard is you know pretty much salivating over the thought of you know sitting around drinking tea with Sarek and <laughs> talking about the founding of the Federation, which of course doesn't happen. But it, it, it's a really really strong story, and I think that's what it comes down to is that. You know, for example, something like the unification two-parter from the fifth season, which, you know, famously ends yeah. with Spock pulling his hood back and, oh, my God, it's Spock, you know, doesn't really work because it's not the, – the story is not about Spock. Yeah. There's no reason for Spock to be there. And – it's it and it's also bloated. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't need to be two two episodes. There's uh, there's a lot of reasons why unification doesn't work. Really, the only thing I like about it is, and I for some reason thought that this was in this episode. I do really like the callback to the mind meld in Sarek when uh, at the end Spock mind melds with uh, Picard and gets some of the feelings yeah. of his father. I mean, that was worth bringing Spock back for having this mind meld be even more meaningful. Yeah, I think that's actually a good point. I mean, certainly they they were able to to use certain things like that. But could Spock have been in a better episode of the Next Generation? Certainly, I, I think so. And I mean, if you look at an episode like Relics from the sixth season yes. of TNG, you know, obviously it's I, it's a good episode. I mean, like, is it an episode that has a lot to say about Scotty specifically? I'm not sure. I, I think it it has some things to say about Scotty. It also has some things to say about how things have changed and getting older. Um, Star Trek loves well, I w- talking about getting older. That was something that really clicked in this episode. I mean, Spock's unification episode is not at all. He's still in his prime at that point. Uh, he's still, you know, very, very capable. He's not ill. You know, there is nothing about Spock retiring. This isn't his last mission. But it's, DS9 runs with that theme a lot. Yeah, there are so many episodes where, you know, this character wants one last glory and they need to have a- – and the show usually figures out how to have it on their own terms. For example, yeah. we've seen plenty of Klingon episodes in DS9 where they need to go out in a Klingon blaze of glory. And in this, we need Sarek to go out on a Vulcan dignity um, and but accomplishment. I think that also crystallizes something for me in, in the different approaches and the different thoughts behind uh, uh, using TOS for TNG and, and, and DS9 because – TNG is very focused on the idea that to tell a story about the original series or the or the you know mm. the past of Star Trek, you need to have one of the actors in the episode and construct an episode around that. Whereas DS9 doesn't think that it, it's not so focused on those seven actors and really you know let's let's be honest those three actors. <laughs> It it is more about the history and the flavor. You know they they bring in uh, uh, characters that appeared in the original series, but. There are characters that no one would have really remembered if you hadn't told them, right? I mean, like Kor. Yeah, Kor is a specific thing. Yeah. And then also, you know, so they never bring those characters back. You never, I mean, none of the original cast 
is in DS9, except for The Trouble with Tribbles, which is all uh, uh, old footage. Yeah, I mean, they very make a point of not ha- not interacting very much with the original actors, you know, because of the nature of the mission, but making the nature of the mission be very secret and where they don't want to fuck up the timeline too much. Because I think that at, at that point in, in, in the franchise, when Deep Space Nine was on, you could make the argument that not just Star Trek, you know, not just the original series, but this entire thing was was more expansive than this. And it was more expansive than yeah. these seven actors. And I think that's where you kind of get that, where, you know, if you look at all of the, the hand-wringing around The Next Generation, which was a completely unproven idea, you know, Star Trek meant the original series. Star Trek meant Kirk and Spock yeah, yeah. and McCoy and Scotty and, and Sulu and, and, and Nichelle Nichols, uh, Uhura and, and Chekhov, right? And... Not Chekhov. He's not always there. <sighs> but it was an unproven idea. It was people were very, very, very vocally against it. And I think that's kind of where you get the idea in the next generation where, okay, we can do stuff with the original series, but we still need to have the original cast in mm. it. And that's just not the case in DS9. Yeah. And DS9 also has the benefit of overlapping for a little while, right? I mean,. DS9, in its way, is a twist on the concept in that it's not a spaceship, it's a station, and, you know, the darker political angles and all of that, the more the focus on the world building, which happens organically in TNG, but was much more deliberate in DS9, but you have those two, three years of overlap, so if DS9 were to completely fucking fail in its first season, you know, okay, well, then the next Star Trek show will just make another Adventures in Space. Yeah, 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 which is kind of what they did yeah (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that i that i think is is kind of interesting is is looking at this kind of theory that that the two series that we have seen so far uh have very different approaches to the original series is is generations because generations primarily doesn't work because they don't need the actors i mean very famously like ronald d moore and brian and braga when they were writing that movie in the beginning of the movie when when the Enterprise B is leaving dry dock and Kirk has to save them and then he gets sucked into yeah. the Nexus, they wanted every single person uh, from the original series there to, to send off the new Enterprise. And a lot of them said no because, you know, Leonard Nimoy famously said, like, the lines were interchangeable. Like, there was a character in the... There was a character named Spock in the script, but mm. he wasn't saying anything that needed to be said by Spock, which I think is kind of weird because Ronald D. Moore is such an original series guy. And, you know, I, I don't... I think it was kind of like they were trying to serve uh, uh, two different masters there, right? Where they're they're looking at this movie as, you know, the last voyage of the original series and then also kind of like... Uh, 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 sending off the the crew of the next generation into the movies, kind of that graduation yeah. idea when they didn't need that. And the original series cast got their send off in the in the undiscovered country. I mean, hell, it also. Uh, I almost feel like Generations might have been a better pilot for than Encounter at Farpoint. At, at the point of the movie Generations, they didn't need a bon voyage, you know, and and in a way that passing the torch had already happened seven years ago. Right. That was the purpose that McCoy and the pilot served. Um, now, if you wanted to have them sending off, you're right. It does feel very redundant almost. Yeah, it feels very redundant. And it feels it just feels unnecessary. You know, there there's no real thought given to why we need to have these characters in there. We're not telling a story about them. I'm 
going back to relics in my mind over and over, and I guess it's I don't know that that one is a retelling of Sarek in some ways. In that, again, it's showing it, it ends in a very different way with Scotty rejuvenated, and uh, I guess that's I don't know. Sarek seems to say that at some point, you know, life will end, age and infirmity will go. I mean. There's that one line that Picard has with, you know, all of this technology and we can't, you know, we still fall to the ravages of age. I mean, that's that's the thesis statement of that episode, right? Um, and Relics, you know, makes the opposite point in that, you know, Relics is kind of a you're only as old as you feel kind of a thing in the end. You can still have use and value in yeah. your um, – I guess we're de- – yeah. So TNG definitely does want to deal with that. TNG maybe maybe because it keeps going to these kind of stores. I wonder if it does if it's doing that because it feels uncomfortable with its relationship. And there is a weird kind of survival guilt in in a way in seeing the previous generation that inspired you and that you looked up to, and then realizing that you're in their position and that they're stepping down. I mean, this is Sarek is symbolically in many ways about realizing that dad doesn't really know everything and he's getting sick now. And, you know, at some point I'm going to be dad. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess, I mean, cause one of the things that it makes me think is we've talked a lot about a, a post, uh, you know, an, another Star Trek series that takes place like a hundred yeah. years after the, you know, TNG DS9 Voyager era. And, I, I kind of want to see that, and I wonder what kind of relationship that series would have with everyone that we knew from those three yeah. series. You know, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, and because I, I feel like it's a very different environment, of course, because when TNG was being created, the idea of a spinoff, not even a spinoff, but like trying to redo right. Star Trek was was just an entirely unproven idea, whereas now it's not. Yeah. So I don't think there would be as much hand-wringing over a new cast, you know, or a new crew. I do wonder about how they would think about having characters from those series in that show if they indeed wanted to do that. Well, uh, you could definitely put Odo in because, you know. Yeah, you could definitely do Odo. You could, you do, could do Dax. Dax. You could do Tuvok. Hmm. Um, you know, a lot of other characters probably not. I mean, but again, d- where the data, I guess. Where a lot of the DS9 characters end, I know, is very. Uh, a lot of the characters pass into legend. I mean, that's where a lot of the original series cast is at this point. They're legendary. Kirk is a legendary captain. Spock, everybody knows who Spock is. You know, everybody looks up to some of the things that Scotty did. You know, the, 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 these people are, have done, you know, they are the elite. They are many people's heroes. They're the reason, you know, some people got into the Starfleet to begin with. And, you know, certainly they're – and so, yeah, the you know, Picard is going to be – Picard is legendary a sure, hundred years sure. from now. Everybody knows how he beat the – I mean, even in series, he's legendary. Not to get too morbid about it, but Patrick Stewart, for example, is not a young man. I mean, he's no. 76 years old. He looks markedly old than he than he did 10 years yeah. ago even. He's he's getting older. I mean, he's only like 10 years younger than than – William Shatner, oh. believe it or not. So it's even to the point where, you know, if they don't do it soon, yeah. they're not going to be able to do it. He could do his all. cameo within in five years, but maybe 10 years he'll, you know. And even data is is a little yeah. bit tricky because 
how are you going to have an ageless Android a hundred years later looking the way Brent Spiner does now? Yeah. I'm not saying Brent Spiner looks bad or no, anything. No, but he's but he is definitely noticeably aged. So yeah, I don't know. And I know Captain Worf still wants to happen. Yeah, Captain Worf still wants to happen, but, but you know my theories for where Worf is going. Uh, Worf is de- eventually well. Uh, can we de Space Nine spoiler? Because I guess we've yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it, Worf is now this. You know, at the at the end of Deep Space Nine, Worf. Just just before you say that, we are recording this. Richard has watched the last episode of Deep Space Nine because we're going to record the last episode of Deep Space Nine in two days. I have not watched it yet, but I have seen it. Yeah. So if you are watching Deep Space Nine for the first time, just uh, check out of this podcast for like two minutes. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, Worf ends as the ambassador from, you know, the Federation ambassador to Kronos. He's going to be working closely with uh, Martok. And when Martok is ready to step down or die, um, I it, it is very clear to me that Worf would be a very obvious choice for that. He, you know, and... To me, that would make a very pro-Federation Klingon Empire, which under Martok it already would be. So, uh, again, I think the sequel series would be interesting to be the Klingons as a full member of the Federation now. Yeah. And I also, you know, I I, I do wonder if, I mean, I agree with all that, but I I, I do think if if Star Trek Discovery is a success, and I, I don't think you can go back to the prequel well that yeah. that many times right I, I think that there's certainly a lot of a lot of time that is not covered by prequels enterprise is 10 years before the founding of the federation about 110 years before the original series star trek discovery is about 20 years before the original series which puts it around 90 years after enterprise i am such a star trek wow nerd. but also a math nerd apparently <laughs> i can do math in my head all right um because you're a nerd. Yeah. That the entire relationship is is different again between TOS and the later series and TNG and whatever this this new series is. And I feel like if they had if they do a a, a new spin-off, a seventh spin-off, which is wow, crazy or a sixth spin-off, whatever the hell it is. Wait, TNG, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, Discovery, so sixth. So sixth, yeah. So if they did a sixth spinoff, if Star they Trek: did, The Third Generation, yeah, like if they the next next generation, <laughs> if they decided, you know what, Star Trek: Discovery, we wanted to, uh, you know, Brian Fuller really wanted to tell this story. He really wanted to play around with the imagery, the the uniforms, the technology of that era. That's the era he grew up watching. He really had a really really strong good idea for a, a, a series in this time period. We're glad we did it. Star Trek is back again. It's, I mean, this is the best case scenario. I have no idea if this is going to happen. I, maybe Star Trek Discovery is going to be terrible and be canceled after one season. But we've proven it. We've brought Star Trek back from the dead again. So let's do an entirely new series. Let's go into the future. Let's you know go to a different galaxy, whatever the fuck they're going to do. I, I feel as though... Having it be more about focusing on the characters from TNG, DS9, and Voyager probably wouldn't be what they do because mm. it's already been proven that they can do that, expand it out into new characters. And so Star Trek has proven itself to be very durable outside of 
specific characters. So it's not really necessary. You can play around with the larger ideas of the franchise. You can play around with a Cardassian Empire that is now a member of the Federation. Yeah. You can now play around with a, a Dominion that uh, is is more peaceful. You can play whatever you want to do. Yeah. You can play around with a universe where the Borg are gone, right? You can do all kinds of interesting things that are more about the ideas behind Star Trek and not the characters. Yeah. I would like, to, oh, now I wonder if the Borg and the Dominion meet up. That would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God, it would be. Okay, that's going to be my, uh, <laughs> I think we know what our pitch for the next, uh, actually, my pitch would be that they fight, they, uh. The Borg invade the Dominion and the Dominion come to the Federation for help. Ah. Oh, my thing was always, I was curious about what the Mirror Universe's Dominion was doing. Probably nothing. Being jello. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> There's no wormhole in there, so uh, no one ever found it. We're so far afield from the original topic of Sarek, I guess. But I think that's uh I think he kind of specifically took this conversation to be free freewheeling. Yeah, no, because I really, you know, I didn't necessarily want to talk about the character of Sarek, but but more about how the franchise uses those characters and how it sort of treats yeah. characters in general. But again, I think that it it is interesting that episodes like Sarek and Relics and even Unification and Trials and Tribulations and stuff like that are very notable episodes. I mean, they're all very good at whenever McCoy's, Oh yeah, people still love the original series. McCoy but McCoy's McCoy's p- p- spot in the pilot notwithstanding this is all, all done with a sense of respect and almost elegies for these characters, right? Relics especially, but Sarek certainly is. Um, I think, interestingly enough, the only one that doesn't feel like that is is, is unification. Hmm. But again, because Spock is still in his prime at that point. he's not. It, it's not about the ending of Spock's career. This is just a very important mission in his life, but just another mission. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to say that original series characters we may not be done with them yet oh i mean we know we're not done with them yet because of the jj abrams movie well yeah but oh may not be done with them quite yet you never know you never know what's gonna happen i don't but i could look it up don't do that okay it's better if you don't know i have no idea if they get home in voyager or not at the end of course they're gonna get home i don't know what if they don't get home look i'm just gonna tell you right now (laughs) Well, I think that's another patron special, Richard. Okay. For our special patrons. For our special patrons. We hope you enjoyed this one. And uh, next month, we're going to do something a little different. We always we're going to go back a little different. to a documentary, and we're going to talk about For the Love of Spock. Oh. This is the documentary that Adam Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy's son, released last year. I saw it in uh, September, I believe. It's quite good. I think it'll give us a lot to talk about. And also, it will have been, uh, I think, when did Leonard Nimoy die? A year ago in February? Two years ago in February? Mm. I don't remember, but it's going to be about two years, so or or one year, whatever the hell it is. The last two weeks have been very long, (laughs) so I don't know if we're going to make it. But yeah, we're going to talk about For the Love of Spock. It is on Netflix, so if you have not seen it, I recommend watching it before we talk about it. And uh Thank you again, everyone, for your support. We really do appreciate it. Um, it makes this podcast possible. Yes. It does. It does. It makes this podcast possible. 
You're the reason we do it. The the free episodes, they don't really count. We're just doing this for this. Right. Yes, that's true. We just really wanted to do a patron special podcast and figured, all right, we need something to hang that on. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back at you next month with another patron special on For the Love of Spock.